welcome to episode 31 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. I'm Kelly. And I'm Dermot. And we are here, as always, to talk about everything related to James Joyce's Ulysses. And this is a very special episode. We were in Dublin in late October, early November of this year, which is 2019, for a few more weeks. And we had the absolute pleasure of interviewing some folks from the Sandy Cove Martello Tower James Joyce Museum. And like Sweeney's Chemist, one of the few places that really is largely untouched, you can see it pretty much as it was, Mm -hmm. as it was written in the book. Yeah, and for anyone who hasn't been to Dublin before, hasn't made it out to Sandy Cove, this is the actual Martello Tower where James Joyce lived for a brief period in 1904, and of course the same one he wrote about in Telemachus and Ulysses. Mm. So it's really a treasure trove of, you know, Joyce historical items. You can see his walking stick. You can see his key to the tower. um, Death mask. His death mask um, and lots of other things. And you can see the actual room where he and Oliver St. John Gogarty and uh, Samuel Trench Slept and apparently shot at imaginary Black Panthers. Without leaving any bullet holes in the walls. Without, yes. We get into all of that and more (laughs) in the episode. Uh, We're going to try to keep this intro pretty short because you probably noticed it's a longer than average Blooms and Barnacles, but it's really jam-packed with good stuff. Uh, Just a couple bits of business before we launch into the episode. Uh, First of all, there's a new post-up at the Blooms and Barnacles blog called The Love That Dare Not Speak Its Name, and it's about, well, Dermot, do you remember what it's about? You've read it. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Do you you care to elaborate? Is the text of um, the the works of James Joyce, uh, does it have a homosexual subtext? Is there like a gay element to Mm -hmm. it or not? And people argue about that. Yeah, and it's uh, it's not just wild speculation. We did our research, and um, it focuses in particular on one passage in Proteus that contains the phrase, Wild's love that dare not speak its name. So I'm really proud of it. I think we did a great job on it. So be sure to check that out. And finally, we would like to give a quick thank you to a friend of ours here in Portland named Michael Steen. Michael is a fantastic Shannos singer and overall great musician and stand-up guy, but he knows Andrew Basquill, who we talked to in this episode, and if it weren't for Michael putting us in touch with Andrew, this episode probably never would have happened. So, Michael, if you are listening to us, thank you. Thank you again. Yep. Yep. All right, and without further ado, let's get into this thing. All right, so we're here at the James Joyce Tower and Museum in Sandy Cove, just south of Dublin. I'm here, Dermot's here. Dermot, say hi. Hi. (laughs) And we're here with three lovely people, and they're going to introduce themselves one by one. Hi. Hi, my name is Maggie Fitzgerald. I am the Chief Coordinator of Volunteers, but I'm besotted by James Joyce, and that's why I'm... So delighted to be part of this setup. Um, I'm particularly interested in how great the women have been mm. in pushing James Joyce to be one of the most renowned uh, writers of the 20th century, 21st century. So I was born and worked here, and when I was growing up, it was, I don't know anybody who came here. So then when I was in UCD, I used to teach. Um, English to foreign teachers to improve their English and we used to come to the tower and invariably it wasn't open or you had to book and I just think it's lovely now it's open 365 days a year uh, we've lovely friendly volunteers all the time uh, with loads of information and we all just love it wonderful okay so I'm Andrew Basquill and I'm currently a deputy uh, chairperson of the Friends of the James Joyce Society, uh, the group that 
basically keeps this uh, tower open. And uh, I've been a member since the beginning of the society. I would have come to Joyce first uh, back in the 1970s. I would have celebrated my first Bloomsday in 1982 in the centenary year. And uh, I love being a volunteer and I love reading Joyce and talking about it. All right, thanks. Hi, my name is James Houlihan. I'm a former chairman of the Friends of Joyce Tower Society Volunteers. Um, I'm now chairman of Omphilus, a company that is poised and ready to take over the operation of the Joyce Tower here in Sandy Cove. Um, my introduction to Joyce was as a teenager when I read Ulysses to impress girls. But that, that didn't work out so well, so I left it alone for quite some time until, like Andrew, I became one of the original volunteers here in 2012 when the tower was threatened with, with closure and we set up the Friends of Joyce Tower to prevent that from happening. All right, thanks guys. So nice to meet you and we like to ask all of our guests the same question. What is your favourite episode or scene from Ulysses? Mine. I love the Agambite of Inwit. I think that's in the first chapter. I love Proteus because you start off with the, uh, what's that favourite? The ineluctable modality of the visible and that, I'm not even sure I know what the words mean, but Nakanember and Nakanember. I don't even, I just, words are wonderful in it. Mm -hmm. And of course, I love the final chapter with Molly soliloquy. Excellent. Well, we're here in the tower, so my episode has to be Telemachus. <laughs> Full stop. Sure. Yeah, I have to say, I have to add to that, my favourite uh, has to be Telemachus because we're here and because it introduces us to the tower as the Omphilus, uh, which is very important because we regard it as a magical place and the centre of the universe. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, we're going to get some information from you guys about yeah, the history of the tower, Joyce's connection to it, and also kind of its its present state. So yeah, so let's typically jump right what in. happens is when people walk in through the door, we, we don't know whether they are uh, experts in Joyce because they come here a lot, or there could be people who don't know anything about uh, Joyce at all. So we have to kind of gauge, you know, how much information, how much time that they have, you know. And uh, James typically, you know, has he's trained us all. In, in giving the tours of the tower. So we're very fortunate to have him here today to give uh, your listeners a flavor of how we welcome people. <laughs> that was a very sarcastic chat there. Oh, no, no, it wasn't. It was very true, as you know. Yeah. Anyway, let me begin by first of all welcoming you to the James Joyce Tower Museum. Um, as its name suggests, it's, it's dedicated to the life and works of our famous author, James Joyce. Um, but what I'd like to do, if I may, is just give you a brief introduction to the tower itself and then ease into its association right. with James Joyce. And I'm sure my colleagues will chip in or, or you can ask questions as, as we yeah, do that. Absolutely. Is that okay? That sounds perfect. So the tower itself, the, it's a Martello Tower. Uh, Martello Towers were built by the British at the beginning of the 19th century. This tower was built in 1804. And they were built at a time when Ireland was still a part of the United Kingdom. And they were built at a, a time when the British were absolutely terrified of a small Frenchman with big ambition that was running rampant throughout Europe, Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, the British were afraid that Napoleon would mount an attack against them in Britain, or that he'd use Ireland as a kind of a stepping stone in order to mount an attack. And at that time, they had every reason to fear the, the former, because, or the latter, because uh, at that time, it was just the time of the United Irishmen, and there were plenty of Irish people who wanted to welcome Napoleon here uh, to help them start a revolution. Yeah? So we could be doing this in French if things had turned out slightly differently. <laughs> Ooh la la. Yeah. So anyway, these towers, the, the British, in response to the Napoleonic threat, built a series of these defensive towers in Britain. They built over 100 of the towers in Britain and about 50 all around Ireland. But here in Dublin, we're very fortunate. We have a, a high concentration of the towers. There's 28 sites in Dublin. There's 16 sites to the south of Dublin and 12 to the north of Dublin. And the ones around Dublin not only were a defensive tower with a big cannon on top, but also acted as an early warning system, which we might have a chance to discuss later on. Mm -hmm. And I can explain how that, uh, that operated. Um, the, the word Martello, incidentally, comes ironically from the island where, where Napoleon was born. It comes from the island of Corsica. In those days, the British were always fighting with the French. And as part of the revolutionary wars that preceded the Napoleonic Wars, they attacked Corsica. And in particular, they attacked a place called Cape Mortella. Now, Cape Mortella was defended by an old 16th century tower, originally constructed to protect against piracy in the area. Um, the British found it very hard to take the tower. They eventually did, 
Um, they were so impressed by its design that they took it as the inspiration for their towers when they came to build them to defend against Napoleon. And they also took the name, but being very poor linguists, <laughs> Mortella became Martello, and that's why they're called Martello Towers to this day. Yeah? Yeah, great. Now, I could tell you, I could tell you other details about this particular tower and its building, if that's of interest. That would be great, yeah. Tell okay. us kind of what makes this one special. Okay, well, well, it's more or less a, a standard Martello Tower built in 1804. Uh, and as with all the Martello Towers, the British used the template or the inspiration from the, the Corsican Tower, but they used local materials uh, to build it. Okay, so we, we have a little interruption there because the tower is a working museum, uh, which means there are people coming and going. So uh, you were just telling us, James, you asked me how long I'd, we'd been in Ireland. Kelly, it was a very important question. How okay. long have you been in Ireland? Well, this trip, we've been here about a week and a half. All right. Well, you've been here long enough to realize, I hope, that the most privileged people in Ireland all live in this part of the country, in South County Dublin. <laughs> yeah? Yes. And we are privileged in absolutely everything, including the wonderful local material we have here that constructed, that was used in the construction of this tower. It's a beautiful granite. And the granite that was used in the construction of this tower was quarried just across the road from the tower itself. And you can see evidence of the quarrymen's activities out there. Um, now, it only took six months in 1804 to quarry, to build this tower from quarrying to final build, and it's lasted well over 200 years. If only the builder who built my extension was quite as good as the builders in those days. But a lot of people think that the granite came from, from Dawkey. They do, they do, but Dawkey Quarry was opened later, and yeah. primarily to service the building of Dunleary Harbour, which mm. we can see from the top of this tower. Um, anyway, Napoleon never came. Uh, he was defeated, obviously, in, in 1815 at the Battle of Waterloo, and the French were no longer a threat from that point onwards to the British. So these towers were built with the sole purpose of keeping Napoleon out, and they had no, no reason to exist after that. So that throughout the rest of the 19th century, they were decommissioned or used for other purposes. But at the beginning of the 20th century, the British government, in their wisdom, decided that they'd like to make a few bob from these towers. So they decided to sell them or rent them to private individuals. And in 1904, 100 years after its original construction, this particular tower was rented to a man by the name of Oliver St. John Gogarty. Now, Oliver St. John Gogarty is enormously important for the association of this tower with one James Joyce. Right? We have a picture of Oliver, which I was showing you downstairs on the wall. We have a picture of Oliver St. John Gogarty. Um, he was quite a young man when he rented this tower for the princely sum of eight pounds a year. He was only 26 years of age, and he had a kind of a vision for what he wanted to create here. He wanted to create a gathering place, a meeting place, for people like us, the intelligentsia. <laughs> we'd come here and we'd, we'd discuss esoteric things, poetry, philosophy, art. But he was an Irishman, so guess what, Kelly? What happened? What are Irishmen famous for? <laughs> I hate to say it, but don't. <laughs> but it is true. We have a stereotype to live down to. We have a stereotype <laughs> they, to live down to. like to have a little drink every now and again. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. it. Well, you're absolutely right. It was party central here. It was lots of drinking, lots of singing, lots of storytelling. Now, when Oliver St. John Gogarty came here, he invited a friend of his. He'd just been studying at Oxford University at the time. And he invited a friend of his to come and stay here, a guy called Samuel Chenevich's Trench. Now, Trench was an Englishman, but he passionately loved Ireland. And he loved Ireland so much that he insisted, for example, he annoyed all the locals because he insisted, for example, on speaking Irish or Gaelic to them. And they hadn't the faintest notion what he was saying. They all spoke English at that time. And he insisted that everything in the tower should be manufactured in Ireland. And when he discovered, for example, that the, the oil, uh, the, the, the um, glass uh, shades of the oil lamps were made in Belgium, he had them all destroyed. He, you know, and smoke and soot was going. He was a really, really annoying man. <laughs> But he's important for the story of this tower. Uh, James Joyce also had, or sorry, Oliver St. Gogarty also had uh, an acquaintance of his whose relationship with him is best described by a modern word, a Facebook word, frenemy. You heard that? Yes. <laughs> sometimes friend, sometimes enemy. Well, his frenemy was a man called James Joyce. And he invited James Joyce to come and stay in this tower to live. And indeed, James Joyce did arrive here in September of 1904, but he only stayed here for six nights 
because of a terrifying incident that happened on the sixth night. In this very room. In this very room, Andrew. <laughs> I should point out that James Joyce himself was a young man when he came to stay in this tower. He was only 22 years of age, but he had highfalutin notions about himself. He had published very little, but he thought he was vastly superior in intellect than his other uh, peers in, in, in the Irish literary movement of the time. He, we had silly people like Yeats and so on that he looked down on. So much so that he wrote an attack on the Irish literary movement as he was coming to stay in this tower uh, called the Holy Office. Mm -hmm. And one of the people he singled out for ridicule was none other than his host-to-be, Oliver St. John Gogarty. So you can imagine that the atmosphere between these three men in this tower in September of 1904 was, to say the least, fraught. <laughs> and that's very important to our story. Yeah? So now that we're in this room, I suppose I should tell you the story of James Joyce's last night here, unless somebody else wants to have a go and tell the story. Andrew, do you want to well, come down? Well, basically, um, this is where they, where they ate and where they slept. And we've kind of recreated the room as it might have been back in the day. There's, we've got the bed, we've got the hammock, we've got the, the table and chairs uh, set for, for, for breakfast. But um, on one particular night, uh, Trench had a nightmare featuring a black panther. And we actually have uh, a porcelain black panther there. <laughs> uh, he woke up in the middle of the night uh, and he took a revolver his revolver, as you do when you have nightmares, and he started shooting. And Joyce was so frightened and upset about this particular episode that he just basically left. If he, if he had ever any intentions of staying any longer, he certainly, that was the end of it. After nine nights, he went away. This was been, it was how many nights? Six nights. Was it only six? It was only six nights. Uh, and uh, that was in September. So, can I ask you a question about the Black Panther dream? Because mm. we, we have a little conspiracy theory about mm. that. Mm. Um, we read, because I own the, the autobiography of Gogarty's that that story mm. appears in, mm. um, but he also had a reputation for being, uh, some of his, his stories being a little more than factual. Sure. Shall yeah. we say? He, yeah. he, he, he likes a hyperbole. We have a saying here, never let the truth interfere with a good story. <laughs> yeah. um, I also read an article from a descendant of Trenches, yeah. and he alleges that Gogarty made the whole thing up, yeah. that he and Joyce had some huge, like, stupid roommate yeah. argument. Yeah. Joyce got mad and stormed out, and yeah. he made up the Black Panther story. To it could be completely... I mean, people ask us, where are the bullet holes? Yeah. Exactly. yeah. And there aren't any, you know? So it's perfectly possible that the whole thing was, was made up. It was an agreed position between <laughs> these men. Yeah, exactly. We found it kind of odd, too, that the Black Panther detail makes it into Ulysses, but this very dramatic incident with the gun doesn't. And the, the autobiography that he put was, oh, Morning Becomes Mrs. Spenlove, that, that came out, I think, after Joyce died and was when... Well, they do reference the shooting at the, the, that happened that night. Now, the difference is that in the real-life story that was concocted, uh, Joyce fled the tower in the early hours of the 15th of September True. in 1904. Yeah. In the book, there's a reference to it happening the night before because he talks about mm -hmm. the guns that, 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 that Haynes had and his mm -hmm. nightmare, or that Trench had and his nightmare, mm -hmm. uh, of course. So, so the story is referenced, but in a slightly different way. Yeah. But I think that one of the things, and I'm sure your, your, your listeners will, will agree, that once you get involved in Joyce, the margin between reality and fiction is very, very blurred. Sure. And we constantly find ourselves, I hope these guys agree and that I'm not the only one, that when talking about it, we, we you know, sometimes you want to talk about Nora Barnacle, but you're talking about Molly. Sometimes mm -hmm. you want to talk about Joyce, you're talking about Steve. Sometimes you want to talk about Buck Mulligan and you're talking right. about... Uh, Go but but people will come into this room and they'll actually study the way yeah. the sun comes in, the way the shadows <laughs> fall. They're trying to figure out where was the bed, where was the hammock, where was the table, where were the chairs, you know. Um, the, the original entrance into the tower is, in, is in this room. It's behind us. So we're, we're high up off the ground, mm -hmm. so there would have been an external staircase. And it was not a ladder, because I imagine like a hand over hand ladder like having to climb up almost like into a treehouse but one thing we noticed was that they mentioned the milk woman bringing 
yeah. jug of milk of it. Yes. And yes. it seems like it'd be quite difficult for such an elderly woman to bring a jug no, of milk. No, it wouldn't be. She'd be used to milking cows. The women but up, up a ladder She's is more You could see that. You okay. could see her doing that. But it's, it's not a, a ladder like... I'm imagining, is it? It's, it's a, like no, it's you, not the if you imagine a st- if you imagine a step ladder and a slant. Oh, okay, that's okay. Kind of yeah. All right. Um, and the other thing I want to ask about this room is that on the wall above the fireplace, yeah. there are these two shafts of light coming down yeah. that are referred to in Ulysses as barbicans, yeah. which is usually in like an external feature on yeah. like a, a castle or something like that. But he talks about the light shafts coming down the barbican onto the flagstone yeah. floor. Do, do you guys have any idea why he if, referred if he, to it this if way? If he said they were Barbicans, then they were Barbicans, and we take no answers. <laughs> well, the idea behind a Barbican mm-hmm. is to act as a defense. Mm-hmm. So that's the whole idea. So we use the word because mm-hmm. the arrows or whatever couldn't get in because it's on a slant or, mm-hmm. or the cannonballs. Or sure. So he's using the whole idea of a Barbican mm-hmm. and trying to convey what he thought of those why they were on the slab. I think we have to remember that despite his, his, uh, I suppose, his attention to detail and his meticulous research for his books, we do allow him some leeway. (laughs) Remember, he stayed here in 1904. He started writing the book in 1914. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, so there was quite an amount of time. And the wonder of it is that he describes this room beautifully Mm -hmm. uh, and he describes the tower beautifully. And the wonder is not that he made a few mistakes, Mm -hmm. but that it was so so accurate so many years later when he was writing it in exile. And of Mm -hmm. course, he was able to do that by constantly harassing his friends to to, to check facts for him. So I think we should forgive him a little. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Give him a little bit of the. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's always interesting to us which things are so precise yeah. and which things are exactly. seemingly out of left field. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Sure. You I guys mean, are the experts, so we, we want your well, learned opinion. I would, I would actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the nice things about actually being a volunteer in the tower, as I was saying at the beginning, is that we, we, we admit to people that we are not professionals, we are not experts, mm-hmm. but we are really enthusiastic amateurs. Some of us have re- read Ulysses once, some, some of us more than once. Mm-hmm. Some people have never read Ulysses and they're quite proud of the fact that they haven't read Ulysses. <laughs> uh, which is allowed as which well. Which that's allowed as Absolutely. well, you know. And, um, and some people are more interested in the tower than in, in Joyce, you know. Mm. Uh, and some people who come to visit the tower are far more interested in the, in the tower and the history of the tower than, uh, than Joyce. Mm-hmm. So we get all sorts of visitors here and we have to be ready to give them as much information mm-hmm. or as little, little. information uh, uh, as they want, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But before we leave this room, I suppose we should point out the obvious and I think we've already referenced it before and that is that um, the, the, the reason that the tower itself is so important, of course, is the setting for the opening chapter of Ulysses. But not only that, but the, the characters that populate the opening chapter of Ulysses, to state the obvious, are based on the real people mm-hmm. that stayed here when Joyce was here. So Oliver St. Gogli, of course, becomes Book Mulligan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trench becomes uh, Haynes. Mm-hmm. And just and just like uh, Trench would have done in real life, when Haynes is waiting here for the Sandy Cove woman to deliver his milk, when she does eventually come up with his milk, he does exactly as Trench would have done in real life. And he addresses her, Osquelga, yes. in Irish. Mm-hmm. And she, of course, doesn't have the faintest notion what he's, gonna, what he's talking about. She thinks he's speaking French. And James Joyce himself, of course, becomes the, one of the leading characters, Stephen Dedalus. And even the incident of the Black Panther, of course, is, is, is related. But he doesn't change his name. He's just called the Black Panther. <laughs> <laughs> he was nominated for an Oscar last year. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So, I mean, as you can imagine, the, the, the busiest day of the year here is, is Bloomsday. Absolutely. Uh, when we're just inundated with people in, in Edwardian costume. Yeah. We, we normally open the tower at 10 o'clock in the morning, but on Bloomsday, we open it at 8 because we start the reading of Telemachus uh, upstairs. And uh, I say people from all over the world come and get a group of uh, fr- uh, Spanish guys who come every year and they... We had an ambassador from Denmark. That's right, yeah. yeah, A lady, which we always love to have those ladies, not just men all the time. Of course. (laughs) Important ladies. It's actually become a kind of a week-long event now. It's become a week-long festival. And here at the Tower, we lay on 
various different acts. We have people, who, we have singers who sing Joycean songs. Uh, we've got actors who reenact Telemachus or other aspects of the of the books. And we have a very favourite uh, actress who comes along and plays the part of Molly Bloom. And for that, we turn this into the, the bedroom oh, and, and Echo Street and so on. So it's a very exciting time for us. It's the whole week, and particularly Bloomsday itself, is an exercise in crowd control. Mm -hmm. In this tiny little tower, last year, for example, there were oh, there were almost one and a half thousand people visiting on the single day, Bloomsday, the 16th of June, 1900. So how do you celebrate Bloomsday? Well, back in, in Portland, um, I got involved in this because I started a Ulysses book club with my friend Tom O'Leary, yeah. who is a Dubliner. Um, he, he, he used to be a regular uh, in the cast of the TV show Fair City. Um, and now he lives in Portland, oh. um, and we started a, a James Joyce book club together. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's and so at his he owns a pub in Portland, and we do readings. We have music. Um, our mutual friend Michael Steen, yeah, Michael Steen. usually is yeah. is uh, strong armed into doing that, and then we spend the whole year we read Ulysses out loud, wow. start to finish. Yeah. This is the third year now we've we've been doing. Very good. Very yeah. good. So we can't spoof too much about the book as we're going around or we'll get cut out. Oh, well, this woman is an well, absolute expert. We absolutely don't need to spoof. <laughs> if, if, you, if, you, if you spoof and I don't catch it, people will yell at me on Twitter. So <laughs> <laughs> nothing but will happen to you. The extra thing that we think we have on anybody else's, we are actually from the place he's mm -hmm. from. The milkmaid, her great great grandson and all her family are still here. She was a real woman. Oh, so can you speak more about her? It's just that, uh, uh, what was her name? O'Brien. But what was her name in the book? I can't remember. No, no, she didn't have, she didn't have, she didn't have, have a name. name but yeah. it, it was a very famous family called O'Brien's mm -hmm. and they had a dairy farm here and they did um, sell milk and they're the shops are still in the last two, except they rent them out now to other people who have different things in them. But her great-great-grandson, uh, Peter, Michael, and there's two other members of the family, but they're all still in this area, oh, so wow. they've never mm -hmm. gone anywhere else. So the descendants of this woman are still here, so they moved Allegedly. on. Allegedly. There's nobody going to deny it. Yeah, nobody's going to deny it. So we've great fun. We have him... Uh, come speak a couple of times as well to, to oh, talk about his yeah. relations. So. Although, although the book was never banned in Ireland because we were just told by the priest not to read it so we didn't have it there uh, at the time when it was first published. There was a game played with a few copies that did come in and the game was to see if you could identify any of your relatives that were, <laughs> that were being portrayed in the book because as you know mm -hmm. uh, many of them or most of them are based on, on, on real life characters. There's a wonderful, wonderful book written by called the people of in, in the real people, the real people oh, of okay. Ulysses and it, she goes through pretty much every character in the book and gives their real life identity real life so, representation yeah, as, as, as a society we, we've done various kind of outings over the years mm -hmm. we, you know we've gone to Paris uh, Trieste uh, Zurich uh, Hungary then last year we went to Hungary because we had to visit the hometown of Leopold Bloom's father, oh, we went to to Zombathe, Zombathe. and there they celebrate Bloom's Day every year, and they've a statue of Joyce coming out of the wall. Of the yeah, oh, wow. so people thought we were crazy. What are you doing going to Hungary? You know, but of course, uh, you know, uh, one of Joyce's friends in Trieste, a Hungarian Jew, is considered as one of the models for for mm -hmm. Leopold Bloom. And with the next trip, we're proposing to do uh, maybe next year is to visit Saint Geran le Puy which is the little village near Vichy, where um, Joyce and Nora moved to in 1940, uh, after um, Paris was uh, taken, it, taken over. Is that where they had the famous dinner? Is that, is that a different place altogether? Do you remember the dinner that they all got together? No, no, no that's that was, just outside Paris. That was to celebrate the French... Yeah, that was to celebrate the French uh, translation, publication yeah, right, French yeah. translation. No, Saint-Jean, it's a bit out of the way, but we hope to do that. But then we d different little outings here. Last year we visited Glasnevin Cemetery and we visited the graves of many of the real people mm -hmm. who were um, buried in Glasnevin Cemetery, who were the real people of Ulysses. Uh, were buried there. And then just a couple of Sundays ago, we visited the local cemetery here, Dean's Grange, and we visited the graves of 12 of the people of Ulysses who were buried in Dean's Grange. 
Uh, it's, it was fabulous. I love visiting cemeteries anyway, so to have all the yeah. history of those people. So uh, uh, Richard uh, Best is, is uh, buried there, for example. Okay. Lister is buried there. Myler Kyo mm-hmm. is an unmarked grave, and we left flowers on uh, oh, uh, Myler Kyo's grave. And then we finished at the... Uh, okay. uh, oh, uh, Curran was there, and uh, we finished at uh, Count John, John McCormick's. Uh, grave and we sang a verse of Love's Old Sweet Song. So uh, he has a magnificent grave yeah. compared mm-hmm. to all the others. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a it's a nice thing to do. You know, I mean, Maggie will tell you about how how she how we organise the the towers volunteers. How do we manage to keep oh, it yeah. open uh, well, every well, day of the year? I mean, we could all tell it, but um, Vincent Brown six years ago now. He decided that it was absolutely horrific that the tower was closed. He's a household name now in Ireland. Vincent Brown is a journalist and know, yeah. broadcaster. An editor of the yeah. was it Business Post. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he lives in this area, so he would, we would all, he, lots of people would know him, but he decided that if he got uh, seven people for the seven days of the week, and those seven people got ten people to act as volunteers, that we could open the tower from 10 to 6 during the summer and 10 to 4 during the winter. And it's gone on like clockwork since then. Uh, lots of the people who started are still here. Lots more have come on board. And there's a wonderful family of volunteers. So we don't find it that hard to get volunteers. And now we have three volunteers on every shift for two hours each shift. And it's fabulous. We've all learned something. That's our education. That's our UCD or Trinity. Our six years now in the tower. So we, and we are now reading Finnegan's Wake. We have a reading group, and it's the biggest reading group, Finnegan's Wake reading group. We think in the world. In the world, yeah. In the world, not just in Ireland. In the world. So how how big is it? We have we're up to seventy. Seventy. We have seventy. Every Wednesday morning in Fitzgerald's pub, which yeah. is just around the corner there. So we would basically, okay. you know, it's a, it's a non-rolling Joyce reading group. So we go from Dubliners to Portrait to you right. and Finnegan's okay. Wake. We're just going around. Uh, so we're tackling, tackling Finnegan's Wake for the second time now. <sighs> Who would, you'd never do it on your own. You need these 30 people and everybody brings something into it. So that's where I learned. Yeah. Yeah. That's my education. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I we mean, the, the, the tower was going to close, which is because in the middle of the recession, mm-hmm. basically um, they decided that the curator who was here every day, they needed him in the city centre. Mm-hmm. So they were going to close the tower. As Maggie said, Vincent Brown called a public mm-hmm. meeting. Uh, we were there and uh, it was huge support. And... Um, Say the, the society has grown from, from strength to and strength. And bizarrely, it's much more successful now as a tourist attraction and as a literary mecca mm-hmm. because it's open 365 days a year now. It used to only be open during the summer period. Mm-hmm. And it, you had to ring up yeah, the It's also, well. also, we've made it free uh, mm-hmm. to try and encourage people. We love donations, but the access, uh, the immediate access to the tower is free and you know on TripAdvisor and please check us out on TripAdvisor <laughs> there's, there's wonderful comments and, and the things that are mentioned most frequently are the friendliness and, and information that the volunteers are able to impart uh, and together with things like free entry and tours and stuff like that so all of those things are very important to us. But an extra big thing is that it's not limited to academics and no. people who've read the book you could have little kids in here for the local national school and you could talk about the pizza oven where they heated the cannonballs. You know, you can go down to anybody's level and then you obviously don't need to go to a high level for these people who know everything mm-hmm. a- anyway. Mm-hmm. So I find that absolutely wonderful. Local people who would never have come in are no longer intimidated coming in. Mm-hmm. They just feel free if they're down swimming in the 40-footer, out for a walk with their kids. Everybody's welcome. And I think that's huge. It is. And I think Joyce would have approved because mm-hmm. uh, his, <laughs> his, his notion of life, his philosophy of life was much more in tune with the common man than it was with the whole... The, 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 Even the people in the book. The things. 
and, common and, people and, as well. And the other sign on the success of the of the volunteer society is that last year we had forty five thousand visitors to the town. Oh my god! And that would have compared when it was when it was run previously and only opened on on limited occasions and very high right. charges in to about two, maybe five thousand people. So. Uh, it's so, been an extraordinary success. I did. I did want to ask a little bit about how the tower. You know, after Gogarty and his friends mm. moved out, it's mm. a long time until now, in yeah. 2019. Yeah, I was um, just talking about talking to Andrew about it downstairs. Um, Gogarty himself kept the tower, kept the tower on until 1925. And then there's a bit of a gap between 1925 and the next significant date, which is 1954. And during that period, we figure that the neighbours, that the landowners around here, the landowner of, 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 the, of the building behind us, would have taken a 100-year lease on the tower from 1925 because it was due to expire in 2025. Okay. Now, what happened then was that in 1954, uh, a man called Michael Scott, a very famous Irish architect, he took, he bought their lease, the remainder of the lease, and um, he was a great, uh, I suppose, he was a cultured man, and one of the things that he recognised was the literary and historic importance of this tower. So he gave it over to the charge of a group calling themselves Friends of Joyce, Friends of James Joyce, mm -hmm. I suppose arguably the precursors of the, of the Friends of Joyce Tower. And they, in turn, opened a museum here in 1962 for the first time. And it was just in the basic shell of the building, the, the, the tower itself. Of course, in 1978, then, an extension was built on uh, to accommodate some more of the exhibits. But uh, I, I, we've, we've learned all of this because uh, right now we're in a transition because uh, Fulcher Ireland, our tourist board, are still, uh, the, the, I suppose, the proprietors no, no. Of, the, of the tower, but they're in the process of handing it over to our local council. And our local council had to uh, lean on the, 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 the kindness of the Scott family to surrender their entitlement to the, the remaining lease uh, to make sure that our, our Office of Public Works could take it over. So does that explain anything to you? Is, <laughs> yes, that, no, is that too full of jargon? No, no, it's good. So is that, that, that transition, you feel positively about that or is it... We feel very, it's, it's taking an awful long time uh, uh, to, to get organized and there's quite a frustration in terms of, you know, we're, we've, we've engaged with our local council to ensure that there is a strong support for the tower and they've undertaken to give us that support, but the nitty gritties of, of leases and signing off contracts is taking a, a lot longer. Brexit by comparison is a cinch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's taking a long time. No, but we'll get we'll get we'll over get the line. There, there are a lot of I's to be dotted and T's to be yeah. crossed and so on. But I mean, we're we're very committed yeah. to uh, keeping the tower open. That's I mean, people important. love it when they come here. I mean, what we have on show, you know, we've got you know first editions. Obviously, we've got um, uh, Joyce's death mask. We've got his guitar, his waistcoat, wonderful. Uh, works of art associated with Joyce. And I, I remember being very delighted by the key. The oh, key yeah. Because the key figures <laughs> into yeah. the... That's yeah. right. That's, that's right. right. Left yeah. on the shirt. Just coming out. That's right. Mulligan. And that's seeing but the other, in the ash plant. Okay, go ahead. The other wonderful thing is uh, the, the, the most literary necktie in the world because it was worn by James Joyce uh, when he was writing Finnegan's Wake. Mm -hmm. And uh, God love him, his eyesight was failing on, yeah. at that time. So he needed someone to whom he could dictate to transcribe his works. So he had, luckily he had a young fellow hanging around his house at the time who he thought was interested in his beautiful daughter, Lucia. Mm -hmm. Turns out this young man was more interested in the genius that was James Joyce. Anyway, the young man nicked his tie. Well, he borrowed it and never gave it back. But in the 1970s, he came up to this tower and he presented the tie to the museum. Now, more importantly, that young man who had borrowed Joyce's tie went on to write a few books and plays of his own and he became a little bit famous. His name was Samuel Beckett. Okay. So both Joyce and Beckett have worn that art tie. So we claim that we have the most literary tie in the world in this tower. And we're, we're kind of proud of the fact that as a museum, it's a bit of a kind of a retro yeah. museum. There's, you're kind of looking into cases yeah. and looking at mm -hmm. stuff. There are no touch screens here or yeah. holograms yeah. or anything like that. So yeah. it's an experience. Yeah. It's like a museum that's kind of... A, Stuck in time. I will say you guys have amazing stuff, though. Oh, but you look they at one of the. I mean, for the people with a macabre outlook in life, we have one of the original of two death masks made yes, of James Joyce. Yes. Because you know, when James Joyce died in 1941 in Zurich, in Switzerland, um, in those days when somebody famous died, instead of checking for a pulse, apparently they slapped a piece of plaster <laughs> on their faces oh, yeah. and made an impression and made a mask. Well, Absolutely, there were there yeah. were two masks made of, 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 of Jimmy Joyce. One of them is here, and the other one I think is in the. 
Zurich Foundation, isn't it? In the, Zurich, the, yeah. in the Joyce Foundation in, in, in Zurich. So that's down there. And then among the, the literature we have, there's two key exhibits that we have. One is a first edition of Ulysses, mm -hmm. uh, published by Sylvia Beach in 1922 uh, from her, her bookstore, the Shakespeare Book Company in Paris. And the other one is, uh, and it's my favourite piece in the whole museum, it's an early American edition of the book uh, published not long after the ban was lifted. Oh, yeah. It was published as part of a limited edition in 1935, and it has illustrations by none other than Ronnie Matisse. Matisse. So it's absolutely yeah. delightful. Oh, we have and that down there. I've never there seen well. those. Mm -hmm. So those are those are things that we're particularly proud of. And there's lots more. And there's lovely correspondence and, and some kind of disturbing correspondence down there as well. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, there's the letter from Nora after James Joyce had died, and she's actually looking for money, looking for support, and she's talking about selling some of his original manuscripts to try and uh, bring, and in, raise some cash. And bring in some cash so there's all sorts of mixes of, of life down in the in the now we area. have a question for you oh okay have you any what would you say uh, idea of what should be done with his bones because there is a, <laughs> <laughs> a debate, a debate. Oh, no. well we're a having debate. a debate but our local uh, county council has come up with this thing saying uh, let's bring his bones home. I've seen that. We actually <laughs> wrote about it somewhat recently on our blog about kind of the controversy around that. So what were the ideas on this or? I think, well, I guess what I never came, we kind of told the, the story about how he supposedly offended Maude Gong while she yeah. was alive yeah. and then his his, uh, you know, twist, his son, son was in charge of Her it. son. Her son. Yeah. 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 Her yeah. son. That's right. Uh, and that because, Minister of Foreign Affairs. Yeah, because of that, um, they've remained in Zurich. But we, we did find out his son Giorgio kind of restarted the process in the 70s, and it seemed like the government was on board, and then it just fizzled, and I never quite found the reason for that. But we kind of also say mm -hmm. that uh, whereas mm -hmm. Yates and Beckett took out Irish passports when we became mm -hmm. a free state, mm -hmm. uh, Joyce didn't, Joyce so didn't. he still had a British passport. So I think mm. they officially said, well, you know, his passport mm. says he's British. Mm -hmm. He didn't take out an Irish. So I think that might have played into it as well. My question that I still have that was never answered is, you can find all this information about what Nora wanted or what yeah. supposedly yeah. Sean McBride wanted yeah. or this person or that person. I don't know what James Joyce wanted. Well, you know, there is an argument on both sides. I mean, you could say, you could say, you know, he declared very famously that uh, if you opened his heart or looked at his heart when he died, he'd have Dublin inscribed on it and so on. It was clear that he had a hugely uh, ambivalent, uh, 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 ambiguous relationship with, uh, with his, the country of his birth. Um, so I don't know, but uh, he's in his adopted Zurich. I think most of us would say that he should just be left rest family. in peace with his family. His family are buried there with would, him as well. Would they repatriate my, his family as well? Well, I don't know, but I, I just no think idea. I just think the, cyn have to. the cynical part of me says that they should just anything that makes money. If we can get more tourists over here, we should steal his body. <laughs> in the middle, we should steal his body in the middle of the <laughs> night. <laughs> become <laughs> become grave stealers. <laughs> Bring it over. Break, actually, there's a good idea. We should break it up and sell it as relics. Yeah. Why relics are they of the day. We love that. They want to keep it in Zurich for this very same reason. The same of course reason. they do. And yes, that's why so we have on. to do it at night time. But the yeah. other thing to do they're not looking. <laughs> well, you can join in our debate. We're having one. Three yeah. people for and three people oh, against. Full disclosure, these guys told <laughs> me before the, the recorder started that they are having a debate at their end of the year party. That's right, at the end of the year party. So I feel party, like yeah. you're, you're using us to kind of... Yeah, yeah. Not, not only should, should Joyce, is the point I will be making if I take a, a, a position, but I say I actually agree he should remain where he is, but to take the opposite position, he should actually be buried in this tower. tower. Because it, it's only yeah. an accident yeah. of fate. It's because, uh, it's because Oliver St. John Gogarty missed with his shot. Yes. That, that he wasn't killed here anyway, that fateful yeah. night of the 14th of September 1904 and had he been killed there they would have called have, they would of course have had to dispose of the body somewhere, somewhere in the body there's a little trap door in the floor there there you <laughs> go straight down straight down to the basement did you want to weigh in on that Andrew? well I was going yeah there are a couple of other issues uh, kind of serious semi-serious oh my god uh, what about what about Lucia, who is buried in Northampton? Yeah, yeah. How about taking her remains and reuniting them with 
her parents and Giorgio in Zurich. That's one thing. That would be. Or, or, uh, and then the other thing is, has anybody asked Stephen? Well, we know what Stephen would say. Yeah, we don't know. He'd say it. Well. <laughs> I didn't okay. say that. Like and this would be Stephen. His grandson. I think, I, his you know what, grandson I think the easiest yeah. way out of this is to do what they did with Yates and take somebody totally unrelated to Yates <laughs> and bring them back here. And Bobby, they don't even know it's his. They, they, they repatri- I can't remember exactly when they repatriated Yates yeah. and they found out later on, I think, that well, there's certainly a huge story that they brought back the wrong person. They oh. don't know that that's true. Well, no, that is just a story that got out But let's well, just bring so. back some random Zurich residents. <laughs> yeah, I love what the guy said, you know, when, when, you know, when they dug up the grave and it wasn't Yates, he said, that happened to me in my leaving cert. Yates didn't come up either. <laughs> <laughs> You'd appreciate that's always that. yeah. <laughs> would you like to 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 visit the yes the yes we would yeah. and i think uh, your your visitors i've seen going by would like to come in here as well and i might sing you the song at the top would okay be better would, would that yeah. here okay yeah we can We are uh, now on the roof of the Martello Tower. Is, is, would you call this a roof? You call it the roof, the top of the tower. The top of the, the tower. Top, top of the um, tower. And it brings up one important facet of James Joyce's writings that's terribly important to us here in this tower. And it's this, that while his, uh, while his novels had universal appeal, uh, and hence we get visitors from all over the world here, um, they were also based very firmly in the city of his birth in Dublin City. Mm-hmm. And he was very proud of this, as you know. He once said, apparently, that if anything happened to Dublin City, you could rebuild it based on his uh, accounts in Ulysses. And, and, and uh, as we mentioned downstairs, this was extraordinary when you consider that he was writing this book abroad. And how did he get the, the accuracy so... How did he get the description so accurate and so on? And well, he had three things going for him, of course. He had... He had. He was a genius. So, like all geniuses, he probably had. You know, think, uh, think Sheldon Cooper in Big Bang Theory. He had a photographic <laughs> memory, so he remembered a lot of the sites that he was to reference in his book. He had a copy of Tom's Directory, which was a kind of a census mm-hmm. document for the time for 1904 that told him who lived where. But most importantly, he checked with his family and friends so that they could um, provide him or check the details that he was to put into the book. And what that means for us in this tower is that we can enjoy the same views from the top of this tower as he describes in the opening chapter of Ulysses. So we can look across, for example, at the harbour mouth of Kingstown Harbour, he calls it in Ulysses. It's a it's, disappointed pier. Yeah, it is. It, definitely. It's two disappointed piers, isn't it? <laughs> uh, they they uh, disappointed Or a disappointed bridge. bridge. Disappointed yeah. bridge. So he talks about the, the um, mailboat as it's leaving the harbour mm-hmm. mouth of Kingstown Harbour. It's called Dunleary Harbour now, of course. We got a bit tired of kings in this country at one stage in our history, <laughs> and we changed the name back to the original. But down here, much more importantly, is the 40-foot bathing place where uh, Buck Mulligan goes at the end of chapter one and um, where he goes for his swim and where, where, where Stephen leaves the key of the tower and then begins his odyssey around Dublin City. Now, I have a quick story about the 40-foot, if you have time for a quick story. We do have a quick, we have a time for a quick story, Fine. yeah. Well, I grew up around this place. I've traveled all over the world, but I grew up around this. And for my sins, I was raised in Dunleary and I was raised in a family of women. Mm-hmm. There was my mother and my two sisters. Now, until as recently as the 1970s, that bathing place was for men only. Oh. We, noticed, we noticed that sign down yeah. there that said gentlemen yeah. only. Yeah. Mm. Well, in the 1970s, my older sister was a young woman, and she was one of the young women who descended upon the 40-foot to insist on her right and their right to swim wherever the hell they went from, mm-hmm. they wanted to. It became known as the attack of the 40-foot women. Um, Maybe I made that bit up, I'm not quite sure. But at any rate, I should also mention uh, that the men in those days didn't wear swimsuits when they swam in the Mm -hmm. 40-foot. And the men who were there decided they would frighten and intimidate these young women by making no attempt to hide their nakedness, yeah? Mm-hmm. Now, James Joyce, as you'll know, describes that sea because of the color of the sea as the snot green sea of Ireland. But more pertinent to my story, he describes it because of the effect of the cold water on a certain part of the male anatomy, he describes it as the scrotum tightening sea. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid those men weren't nearly as frightening or intimidating as I thought they were. And that's why it's a mixed bathing area to this day. So that's my story then. Very good. Loads of people swim down there all year round, and it's magnificent to get into the sea every day. Yeah, we were down there, and there were people going in. I'm there in my winter coat, and no, once you do it every day, oh. uh, it's just like having a cup of coffee. 
<laughs> it sounds like the opposite of a cup no, of coffee. No, it really is. It becomes like, you know, it's uh, just something you do. It it's damages like, your brain, though, my guy. Do you do it a lot? I do it every day. <laughs> so you can imagine up here on Bloomsday, you know, when mm-hmm. we kick off Telemachus, it's just crowded with crowded. people right. all dressed head to toe. <laughs> it's it's some job getting up that stairs in, in an Edwardian dress, isn't it, uh, Maggie? Yeah, yeah, but you, you manage it nonetheless, Andrew. Somehow. How I many, how many people show up in their yellow dressing gowns? No, we don't really get a lot of that. You know, we try to <laughs> discourage... Uh, yeah. who's speaking the word. Uh, yeah, James was, James was book mulligan. I, I did it very uh, badly, it has to be said. Oh, okay. Not at all, not at all. Uh, Super. Joyce talks about the Mugland Island over there. Oh, yeah. then... And another cinema, we mentioned the Barbicans downstairs, um, he describes beautifully the whale-like snout of Bray Head sitting on the water. And if you look at Bray Head from the top of Kalini Hill, you it certainly it. looks like a whale sitting on the water. He describes nice. it beautifully. The only problem is you can't see it. You can't it see it from here. This oh, no. <laughs> so, however, and, he and does this say is... he looks towards Bray uh, Head. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, he doesn't actually say he looks Andrew. at Bray Head. He didn't okay. say but that's he the kind of thing, That's the kind of thing like, that Joyce is arguing yes. about. Uh, endlessly, <laughs> tirelessly. And, you know. Yeah, that's the point of having a podcast, because they can't argue back yeah. when I'm talking. And then we can look across <laughs> the bay to Hose, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, which uh, features so much in, uh, in Molly's uh, soliloquy. Yeah. So it's like as if the... The, the novel encircles uh, the bay. Mm-hmm. The horseshoe shape. Yeah. And it's very day. beautiful, even on a, a cloudy a November day. But that's what's lovely about it. It changes all the time. Mm-hmm. And as Joyce says in his photos, the clouds going across the sky. Yeah. And then, of course, we proudly fly the monster flag, which disturbs me every time I come up here. <laughs> it's Why, the James? Well, the, the monster flag. This is Leinster we're in at the moment. We, oh, fre- okay. we frequently play monster in rugby sports like and rugby. And I'm a monster supporter, and I come from Leinster, so you know your yeah. your tail of us. Just my disdain is unique to me. <laughs> but it's one of the but most frequently asked questions. questions is, okay. Why have you got a monster flag? And the answer, of course, is that it's the only flag mentioned in Ulysses. It's referred to as the flag of the sons of Davis uh, oh, of, yeah. uh, of Desmond, Desmond in the uh, Cyclops chapter, the Citizen, I think, Wonderful. involving the Citizen. Mm-hmm. So that's and the that's flag that flies here. I did have one more archae- uh, arch- architectural question yeah, for you. Sure. The, the gun rest, is yeah. is this this big yeah. black pole yeah, in the middle? Is where, this is where uh, Buck Mulligan... We have a picture. ...mounted the, the, the gun rest. We have okay. a picture of the gun in place downstairs, but at the time of Joyce, of course, there was no gun up here. And this is where, in his flowing mm-hmm. yellow dressing gown, Buck Mulligan <laughs> addressed. And I suppose he began the book in the same way as it was going to continue, because it was very shocking at the time to... Uh, I suppose to mock, to have a mock Latin mass, you know, yes, intro ibo yeah. adaptare day and all the rest of that. And as he blesses his, and I'm always amused by the fact that um, when he calls Stephen Dedalus up from downstairs, mm-hmm. he calls him by his nickname, of course, come up, Kinch, come up, you yeah. fearful Jesuit. Mm-hmm. And of course, Kinch is a great nickname because this is Joyce giving himself a nickname. So mm-hmm. clearly he's going to give himself a good nickname. And of course, Kinch being the sharp blade or the sharp mind. Okay. But it's usually a good deal warmer on Bloomsday than it is today. <laughs> it is. You know, <laughs> are, you, are you subtly suggesting we should move inside? This is, well, I mean, there's, a touch, to, there's a touch of the scrotum tightening well, about this. Well, well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know about that. Room, which would be better for you? In, inside, I think, because it's, it's chilly. Okay, it's chilly and, and a little drippy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're back indoors, and... We are once again in the the Black Panther room, and Andrew is going to favor us with a song. You can hear There's lots of folks in here. Andrew is going to um, regale us with a song. Okay. And is this this is an original of yours? This is an original. Maggie, we're going. Okay. I'm, do going we all, to, I'm going to sing Andrew, a song. Andrew, okay. Do we all have to stay. No, you this? don't have to stay. <laughs> but if, you, if, you, if you'd like to stay, this song is not too long, but it tells the story of the tower and the volunteers. All right. So it's called the Sandy Cove Martello James Joyce Tower. Right? Of all the towers Billy Pitt had built when the French were on the sea to defend this land, no matter what it took. There's one that's known around the world and it's loved by you and me. And it's all because of one man and a book. The Sandy Cove Martello, 
James Joyce Tower and Museum since 1962. People come from near and far just to gaze at his guitar, artifacts and first editions too. Well, once Napoleon Bonaparte met his Waterloo, this mighty tower lost its raison d'etre. But a gentleman named Gogarty had a plan to make it new, so it came alive again a century later. Oliver St. John Gogarty was a man of many parts. He invited friends and enemies to stay. He rebranded the tower as a centre for the arts. He was the Tyrone Guthrie of his day. The Sandy Cove Martello, James Joyce Tower, where you're welcome every day of the year, where the monster flag flies high and people wonder why. why. <laughs> if you want to know, just ask a volunteer. Well, one night in September of the year 1904, Samuel Trench and James Joyce were his guests. They'd spent the day creating till they could do no more. Off they went to bed to get some rest. But their dreams were interrupted by a terrifying scream. <laughs> Around the room the bullets ricocheted. Trench had sworn he'd seen a black panther in a dream. Joyce could take no more and ran away from the Sandy Cove Martello, James Joyce Tower and Museum since 1962. With walls eight foot thick, made with granite, not with brick. We've got artifacts and first editions too. So, Ulysses was written in cities far away and we celebrate its genius every year. It's the story of a man and a city and a day, and it began and begins right here in the Sandy Cove Martello, James Joyce Tower, where you're welcome every day of the year. Oliver St. John's Omphalus, the setting for Telemachus. If you want to know more, ask a volunteer. The Sandy Cove Martello, James Joyce Tower, where you're welcome every day of the year. Rather bleak in winter time, what, what a view, it's worth a climb. And if you want to know more, ask a volunteer. Thank you for your kind donation. Want to know more, ask a volunteer. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So for your listeners, um, Anybody can join the Friends of the James Joyce Tower. They log on to our website, which is www.joystower.ie. Joystower.ie. So you don't have to be in Ireland to be a member. It's only, what is it, 10 euro or something, 15 euro. I can't remember how much. It's nominal. But it's a way of supporting uh, everything that we do in the tower. So we'd be delighted to hear from your listeners who are worldwide, of course, aren't they? Of course, yeah. (laughs) I think every continent except Antarctica. Okay, we'll, we'll, so we'll work on that. Pull your weight, Antarctica. <laughs> um, and just to reiterate, you guys are totally volunteer run, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the friends, James, anybody can come a fr- become a friend to the tower, Then, but most of the friends who live locally volunteer. Mm. But there's no obligation if you're a member of the society mm-hmm. to volunteer. So what you, you, you Except decide, if we're stuck. Except if we're stuck. We might be calling <laughs> you from Portland, Oregon. Come on. <laughs> but um, so we, 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 we volunteer two hours a week and we're open in the summertime between 10 and 6 and then when the clocks change uh, from, from 10 to 4. And as I say, we're uh, not experts, but we are very, very enthusiastic yeah. and we love what we do. That's the whole thing. Yeah. And yeah. that's the whole ethos of Blooms and Barnacles We want everybody yeah. to feel that they can be part of it. You don't have to be highly intellectual. You just have to be interested. I thought you did have to be highly intellectual. <laughs> I'm sorry, James. <laughs> I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> so if you're in Sandy Cove, please call and say hello to us in the mm-hmm. tower. If you're here on a Wednesday morning, drop into Fitzgerald's where we have the reading group, mm-hmm. which kicks off at 11 o'clock. Uh, at the moment, November 2019, we're uh, reading Finnegan's Wake. We're on chapter two. Um, but we're always reading Joyce. And we're almost there. They're almost every well every Wednesday, except for during the summer. Yeah, yeah. we take yeah. a rest. 
Okay. <laughs> and I would say this is a, a must visit for anyone oh, coming yeah. to Dublin. This is one Absolutely, of our favorite yeah. spots. That's very kind of you. Yeah. Thank you. We love it. Yeah. yeah, so if, I mean, if you're interested in Joyce and you're coming to Dublin, you, know, you have to come to the Tower. Uh, you have to go to the James Joyce Centre in North Great mm -hmm. George Street. You have to visit the new um, Molly, the Museum of Irish Literature, which is in Stevens Green. Have you had a chance to? We haven't made it there yet. Okay. Not just I have been there and I spent most of my life between book trade and the art world. <laughs> I haven't been there yet, so. It's very new though. It's only very new. Yeah. It's only yeah. just opened. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And uh, Sweeney's Pharmacy. And Sweeney's, of course. Of course. <laughs> Sorry, PJ. <laughs> He'll kill me for that. Yeah. yeah. And Sweeney's. We won't of tell him. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Great. All right. all right. Thank you all so much. This has been an absolute delight. Right. Okay, so Kelly. Thank you. Thank you. We loved it. Thanks so much for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Please visit our website at bloomsandbarnacles.com to read our blog, which is updated weekly on Mondays with a new blog post and artwork about James Joyce's novel Ulysses. And you'll find a new podcast there as well fortnightly. We are on Facebook. You can search for our Facebook group, Blooms and Barnacles Podcast, on Facebook. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow us at BarnacleCast. You can find our podcast pretty much any place you find podcasts. That includes iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Go ahead and subscribe, and you won't have to remember which week we're dropping the podcast. Also, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes as that helps our rankings and helps people find the podcast. And if you leave a positive review, we'll read it on the podcast. Finally, if you want to get in touch with us, the best way to do that is through email. You can email us at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. Please send questions and comments and we'll read them on the show if we get any good ones. Until then, have a great two weeks. And we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.